Would you turn in your Bibles, you'll probably get a, a little bit of a crease and a bent spine at this point, um, to Matthew 6. Pete spoke um, the first sermon in this series on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, Ben, last week, I understand it. Ooh, that's got a bit of a wilt. <coughs> While we're just sorting ourselves out, there's a bit of a competition here. Um, Answers on a postcard, please. What does this signify, these hands clasped like that? You can be as frivolous as you like. I came up with the, um, whoops, I forgot that the superglue was open. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you could just pass those, those comments down the front for the end, I won't actually read them out, but it would be most amusing to see what, um, what you think that signifies there. Uh, several things that come to mind. I won't go there. Um, anyway, Matthew 6. And in your Bible, it's probably titled, Teaching About Prayer and Fasting. And Pete went through the first few verses there and the outline, and Ben referred to them as well. And uh, we are going to read again the Lord's Prayer from the beginning. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured. Now, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Yours will say something slightly different. It's quite helpful, I think, to read several different translations to find out um, a little bit more fully what the original writers meant. The original writers would have written in a completely different language, and the words don't precisely overlap with ours. So when the translators translate, they, they take great care to bring the full meaning out. But because we have, in some respects, fewer words in English than the original writers were um, blessed with, particularly if they were writing in Greek, then uh, we may find it beneficial to read more than one version, which brings a slightly different flavour um, or a slightly better understanding of the original words used. Does that make sense? Good. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured. May your kingdom come soon. And then the words that I'm dealing with, may your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Now, I th I, when I was looking at this, I thought, in my mind, this, this has brought up for me three different questions. And I'm going to focus the whole talk around three questions. The first question um, that, that comes up here is, well, we're asking God to do his will. Does he really need our permission to do so? Isn't it a bit like saying, do what you're going to do anyway? You know, it's a bit like us saying, um, Lord, you're free to start now. In which case, how did the world ever get created? God obviously does not need our permission. And yet, when we read from the beginning of the Bible right through to the end, we find that he chose certain people at certain times to fulfill his purposes. We can think right back um, to Abraham and before. But Abraham particularly, he chose a man in a certain time and chose to use him. So God involves us. Bit of a whistle. I must wear my own teeth. Um, involves us in his purposes and seeks to um, seeks the outworking of his will in us and through us, as well as independently. This is one of those think about it moments. When I was uh, growing up in my family, I was of the view that we worshipped God, we praised him, but basically he did it. 
over the years, I've increasingly and am increasingly becoming aware of the fact that he wants to work with me. Which is absolutely mind-blowing, isn't it? You know, there's little Peter. He's not really that little, but compared to God, there's Peter there. Becomes a Christian at whatever age. What age do you become a Christian, Peter? 31. 31. Goodness me. (laughs) And, you know, so God has already planned to use Peter. In fact, God being outside of the confines of time, God's plan for Peter was already complete when Peter's eyes were opened and he saw Jesus in a new light and realized that there was no way to go but to take the step of allowing this man who is also God to become his Lord and Savior. And at that moment, God said, we begin working together. Isn't that fantastic? And for you, Peter, I'm ever so glad that he did. (laughs) Not Not for the sake of anything negative, but I'm glad that you work with God and work with me as well and interact with me if you have the attitude that you think um god can do it anyway he doesn't really need me you need a mind change you really do you need to pray this part of the prayer thy will be done thy will be done let's move on quickly to the next question which is one that i probably even more identified with isn't it a bit fatalistic you know Oh, uh, uh, whatever, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. Inshallah. God willing. We were very fond of that phrase, God willing, when I grew up. So it's not just a Muslim uh, phrase. But, uh, you know, we, we would, even to the extent that the, um, the, 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 the person overseeing the meeting would not put all the hymns up in case God didn't want those particular ones. And all sorts of things like that. And we encountered various people who would just accept their lot in life. Oh, it's the will of God. Your will be done, Lord. And possibly they might say, give me the grace to go through it. And yet when I read the Bible more fully, in fact, particularly in Luke, where we find this Lord's Prayer um, reiterated and stated again in a slightly different context, If you would like to turn to it, Luke 11 in your Bibles. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Isn't that comforting that we don't expect you to just know it? Because a lot of us, we think about praying and think, I don't know what to say. I mean, Trevor, what did you feel? You've no Christian experience before you became a Christian. You've no background of church. What did you feel about prayer? Did you find it bewildering? Hard. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have somebody to come alongside you and say, this is how you do it? It's exactly what the disciples felt then. So it's not just us that feel it. I bet no one else wanted to pray. It's only me. They thought it too. Teach us how to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, you stupid what's this, you should know. No, he did not. He said, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then your translation may miss out the bit about your will be done, but it is in some manuscripts. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Last week, Ben made the point very clearly that this is not to be a prayer by rote. It's not some mantra. It's not something that we 
um, read through, and somehow it's done. You know, uh, a bit like grace. Um, uh, for about to receive, may the Lord makes truly thankful. Amen. And I had no idea what the words were, but I knew that if I said it, I'd done the right thing before I could eat. That's not what this prayer is designed to be. It's designed to be an illustration of, the, if you like, the, the processes of prayer. And Pete very ably and aptly demonstrated um, the first part in we look to God. And Jesus says, call him Father. And the previous preach, which I did, I t- we talked I'm going to interact a little bit about Father, much more to do on that throughout our lives. The fantastic thing is that God has given us a certain number of years, different from all of us, but that, those years are each one, a discovery increasing and growing about who this God is, who this Father figure is, how he loves us, how he wants to be involved with us, how he looks at us personally, individually, sees our needs, our differences, and yet, chose us with those needs and differences and said, I can work with that one and that one and that one. I will have them as sons. Ben then talked about the second section, uh, Your Kingdom Come. And uh, I got quite excited. I listened to it on um, um, uh, iTunes, is it iTunes? Oh, I listened to it on the net anyway. And normally, if, you know, it's one of those things, you listen to it, you put your headphones on, you listen to it, and it's great for insomnia, isn't it, to listen to a preach? You know, it's, it's something about it. You can't see anything, and there's this voice droning on, a boring voice. Well, Ben's voice wasn't boring. <laughs> an interminably boring voice. But he wasn't, he wasn't boring, and I was grasped by the preach, and I found myself going, yes! Because he laid out the fact that when we pray... Um, about God's kingdom coming. We get excited about it. We focus. It changes our mindset. It changes our heart. And then there's a third petition. Your will be done. Your will be done. It's active. Now then, at the end of that, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. I don't think the three is significant. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I've no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me now, the door is already locked and my children are in bed. In fact, be quiet, would seem to be the inference here. Pitch black, they're in bed, you should be too. Ask me in the morning sort of thing. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, says Jesus, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And this next verse, these next two verses are probably two verses that shocked me like a thunderbolt when I first became a Christian. So I say to you, this is Jesus, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. In my mind at that time, that blew away the fatalistic approach. Our prayers have effect, which I think is where this question really rests. 
Nicky Gumbel has the view um, that I think is, explains part of the um, question here in the Alpha book when he's talking about um, prayer. And he's talking about this particular part of the Lord's Prayer as um, a help for us to pray. And he says, your will be done as it is in heaven. This is not resignation. It's the releasing of the burdens that we so often carry. Many people are worried about decisions they are facing. But it's true, isn't it, of us all. Many people, uh, the decisions may be major or minor, but if we want to be sure that we don't make a mistake, we need to pray. Your will be done. The psalmist says, and I think this is one of the most important things about prayer, the psalmist says, commit your ways to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Now that verse there both enables us to tie in with the fact that our prayers affect God. Which seems strange when we know that God is unchanging. A writer and um, lecturer, D.A. Carson, did a series of lectures called The Difficult... The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in, within those lectures and a book that he wrote about those lectures, he states this. He says, God is not becoming. What he means is that, becoming in inverted commas. God is being, as in complete, needs nothing more, never was any less. He was not created All creatures and created things are becoming. So we are undergoing change. We are born as babies. We hope not to be complete as babies. Is that right? Is that understandable? It will be very difficult to get around. We'd have to have very small motor cars. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We are always becoming something different to what we presently are. There is change. There is constantly change and we live with change. We live in a sphere of time which embodies change. So when we talk about God being unchanging, that is the element, um, or that is the uh, description of God as being being. Now, we are changing. God being outside of the confines of time, as in being, um, what's the term? Well, basically, he is not restricted by time. He is there at the end of our lives and there at the beginning. Simultaneously, that's how I understand it. That's my present understanding of it. Hmm? No, omnipresent would be everywhere at once. But it is an omni. (laughs) Second postcard. (laughs) He's eternal, yeah. Um. One writer about talking about prayer um, made the statement, he said, if God knows all, then surely our prayers are redundant. Surely it's, you know, God set everything in order and we just follow it. So us to ask God to change something is useless. Um, a, a, um, A reporter in the Times countered that by saying, if God is outside of time and knows all things, then he can quite easily react to a prayer of a man involved in a motor accident in a split second. 
because he has all eternity to do so. In fact, if God wishes it, he can answer a prayer before it's prayed because he is outside of our time continuum, time-space continuum. Which means that we can pray, and I don't like to use the term change God's mind, but Jesus urges us to pray, he urges us to continually pray that God may do certain things. Which leads us on to question three. Do we need to know God's will? And if so, how do we? Well, the the answer to this one is tied up in the previous two questions. If we have a purpose, if God chooses people for a purpose, we need to know what that purpose is. Maybe not completely, maybe only a minute at a time, but we do need to know. Otherwise, we would say that we're zombies. We are not complete human beings with freedom of choice. We know that we are human beings with freedom of choice, therefore we need to know what those choices ought to be. That's point one. Now, I know the rest of you are perfect and you manage to do everything that God tells you without a struggle. Andy, why are you laughing? (laughs) I'm not like that. I need help. In fact, I'm like the baby in arms. God tells me to do something. I'm so unable to do it. I need regeneration. I need to be made alive. So I can respond first, and that's where Jesus comes in. He died to give us life. If you've never heard that statement before, if you don't understand it, then you need to talk to someone afterwards and ask some questions about this Jesus, who he was. What did he do? What does John mean he died to give us life? Is he still dead? I'm not going to answer those questions now because I want you to ask them if you don't know the answers already. So there I am. I am now, bang, alive. Able to respond to God. Able to worship him. But when the time comes, which is pretty darn quick, and he says, great, let's go hand in hand and do so and so, I say, I don't know how. Let alone don't know how. I am too weak and I have no skills. And he says, yeah, you're right, you're right. Ah. And then Jesus um, puts the Father's plan into words and says, when I go, when I leave you, when I've died, and when I go and sit beside the Father, having completed my task, I will send another comforter to be with you, one just like I am, paraclete, one who um, is completely like me. So Jesus died for us. He makes me alive by forgiving my sins, by taking upon himself the burden of my sins, which only he could deal with. Not only that, not only do I get Jesus' help in that fashion, and we'll talk a little bit more about how else he helps us in a moment, but I also get another helper. Fantastic. These two helpers operate in different ways. This book is very old and yellowed, almost as old and yellowed as I am. When I first discovered about this second helper, this other helper, just like Jesus, 
Um, I heard of a man called Arthur Wallace, who was a bit of a pioneer in um, things of the spirit. Yeah, there should be some nods amongst the very ancient ones of you out there. If you'd like to be known as ancient, nod your head and you know, yeah, yeah. Arthur Wallace was a bit of a beacon for me in that he, uh, he, I would read some of his stuff and hear him talk and I would go, ah, and there would be a, um, a recognition of truth in my heart. And at the very beginning of this book, which is a brilliant book, it's called Pray in the Spirit, um, he has this to say. Now, Really, this is a whole book uncovering something. So when I give you little snippets from it, I hope it makes you hungry to read the book and find out precisely what he's saying. When Jesus introduced to his disciples the distinct promise of the Holy Spirit, he said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. Point one, he's there forever, this counsellor. He then talks about the word counselor and the word paraclete and says that it's you know, like a legal term that in terms, um, uh, as some translations may do, comforter, it misses that legal representation. A counselor um, or an advocate is somebody who pleads your case. And that is centrally important to what Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus told the disciples that he would ask the Father to send them another paraclete, he used the word signifying another of the same kind. It was as though he was saying, I alone have been your paraclete up to the present, but the Father will send you another like me. Paraclete, sorry, I mis- misinterpreted um, that. Um, Jesus, up to this point for the disciples, has been their um, advocate to the Father. He has stood between them and pleaded their case to the Father, God. And he never stops doing that with any one of us. It says he sits at the right hand of the Father and pleads our case, which is fantastic, isn't it? You know, in our um, picture language, in our um, understanding of things, we can picture God on his throne, Jesus beside him, constantly saying... um, We'll pick on Peter today because he's he's leading the meeting and he deserves it. Uh, Yeah, Peter, um, I died for him. Look at what I've done for him. Look at how much my death is more than than, uh, uh, enough to wipe away his sins. And the father says, oh, I'm so pleased. Yes, I'll look at Peter. And then um, Peter comes, you know, is inspired to have a request. and, And Jesus says, that request... We need to do that because it's in line with our will. And the Father says, yes and amen, let's do it. So constantly Jesus is defending our cause. At times, and we do, when we sin, Jesus says, we knew about that one, didn't we? And God the Father says, of course. And uh, before he commits it, yes, of course, we knew about that sin. And uh, Jesus says, my death blots that one out doesn't it and God says I will choose to remember that sin no more and when God chooses to do something he doesn't change his mind back again in this instance when God chooses to remember our sins no more that's it 
when the, the songs is it's as if we'd never sinned, then that's what it's like. It's not that God is forgetful. But in some respects, it might as well have been as though God was forgetful. He chooses actively to remember our sins no more. It is covered by the blood and death of Jesus. It's paid for. So that's what Jesus does. Now what about this other comforter, this other counsellor, this other paraclete, this advocate? Now notice that there is a difference, says Arthur Wallace, in the location of these two intercessors. Christ intercedes at the right hand of God, as it says in Romans 8, verse 34. Romans 8 again. Um, have you studied Romans 8 yet? Hands, please. Have you studied Romans 8 yet? Good. Have you restudied it since I preached on the Father about four weeks ago? Hands, please. You have. Well done, Liam. Extra coffee for Liam. Why have you not studied it? I'd probably be sitting where you are at this point, but I would deserve also to, for someone to say, why have you not studied it? Why have you not looked again? Because it relates to the Galatians passage that I, I um, use. You should not be lazy in studying. You should not be lazy in listening to sermons. You really should not. Your life depends upon it. How arrogant you say. My life depends upon what you say. No, your life does not depend on what I say, John Fever, but it does depend on you listening to God and finding out what he's got to say to you. It depends on you discovering and outworking his will as it applies to your life. Romans 8 is possibly, I think, one of the most important passages of the Bible for understanding how God works with us, in us. You'll find it releasing. Now, the fact you find it releasing will be enough for you to turn up Romans 8 and study it. Please, don't let many weeks pass before you have reread and got excited about Romans 8. Read it with this comforter, this counsellor, this advocate, talking to you at the same time, pleading your case to the Father, but also instructing you about what you read. Christ intercedes at the right hand of God. He is an advocate with the Father. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, intercedes in the hearts of men. That's Romans 8, verse 27, which says this. I'm reading from the New Century version here because it had a slightly easier way of understanding the matter. And this is uh, Paul speaking. Also, the Spirit helps us with our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself speaks to God for us. Even begs God for us with deep feelings that word cannot explain. God can see what's in people's hearts and he knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaks to God for his people in a way that God wants. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us, Paul makes clear in Romans 8. And in being within us, the Holy Spirit pleads for us from within. The location is within us. Arthur Wallace makes the point in his book here that... We don't find of any other way that the Holy Spirit pleads or any other place that he pleads from but within us. God in us. I got, I, I, I read this and, and I thought to myself, 
Do I know anything? All this is suddenly becoming refreshed in my mind. The Holy Spirit is in me. And, and I think I'd had the attitude, and probably still do, and probably have to work it through, that it was very nice that the Holy Spirit came in, in to live in me and to help me, but it was somehow a bit like encased or remote and separate, even though it was within me. I think I saw it like a clay pot as being me, with a hollow inside, with the Holy Spirit somehow suspended, not touching the walls. I don't mean that precisely. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. These are mind-boggling facts. So mind-boggling we have difficulty in understanding it. Ian, you are a vessel of the Holy Spirit. You are a jar, as one writer, you know, a jar of clay you know, made from the dust of the earth. You contain God. That's fantastic. Not only do we contain him, or he chooses to come and live within us, he constantly pleads to the Father on our behalf. I wouldn't do that. And I think I know myself too well. The Holy Spirit, who knows me better than I know myself, has always known about me even before I was created, knows the trouble I would get myself into, knows the trouble that I choose, chose not to get myself into, but that circumstances threw me into, knows every choice I will ever make, chooses to plead on my behalf. And I found myself gaining confidence from that. Do you? Oh, fantastic. I think that we, you know, we call ourselves a charismatic church. Charismatic, uh, charismatic is to do with the gifts of the Spirit. But at the centre of all our um, beliefs, sorry Peter, teeth again, spat at you. At the centre of all our beliefs is that God is not remote. That God the Father had a plan to save us as individuals. He looked on us each and individually. So valuable were he to him that he sent his son, Jesus, to live as a man for a season to be made a little lower than the angels. And we were the purpose that he was made a little lower than the angels so that we could understand that he understood us. So that he could be just like us and yet not sin. That he could go through life not sinning, doing the perfect will of the Father. Jesus did nothing outside of God's will. That, I think, would be a fair general understanding for a Christian. Is that not right? And yet Jesus said, I do nothing except what I see the Father doing, what I hear from the Father. So constantly he was seeking the will of the Father. Now, um, relationally, he had the advantage in not having sin getting in the way. So his I would say his levels of communication were that much un less blocked, if you like, less static, if you want to think in terms of electrical terms. In every other way, he reduced himself to our limitations, otherwise he was not completely human. He was completely human, completely God at the same time. But he could not have been completely human if he had something extra in terms of communication to God's than us, something that we could not obtain. Now, because Jesus has died for our sins, that static, that interference,
can be removed. The difference is we have to learn through our lives to hear from God. We have to learn to hear his voice. We have to learn to differentiate between what um, our flesh, the the part of us that wants to to please ourselves will say, um, what Satan, who does not want us to succeed, will say, and who loves to mimic, but he's not actually very good at it, and the loving voice of the Father speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. I wish that I had lived every day of my life to that end. I wish I had. And every day I intend to start again. But I will say this, and I'm sure that some of you who um, are better down the road than I will say, that the discovery of this communication, this relationship, has been the most fascinating, fulfilling enthralling thing of your whole lives that you can't imagine a better way to live a life is that so so i'm just going from what i've talked to people on you know older people particularly um, because you've lived longer and you've had more experience i'm not saying it's you know something changes when you get older but you can't you can't have experience when you first are born can you it only comes with years it's one of those things you can't have experience without getting it so um i was the lucky recipient of advice from older people and still am and uh, you who are older than I in the faith encourage me this changes I think our attitude to praying your will be done in conclusion When we pray for God's will to be done here on earth, we're not only making a request for his rule and reign to increase here on earth, which would be valuable and would bless us, but we're also identifying with him as willing participants. So praying this part of the prayer is dangerous. Your will be done. It's not abdication, saying, doesn't matter what I do, your will be done, the fatalistic approach. It's actually saying... I see you want to involve me. And then we might think of Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet um, 600 years, I believe, before the birth of Christ. I believe that's right. He lived. He lived in a time of great trial and trouble. And it says this towards the beginning of the book of, about Isaiah. Um, the book of his prophecies and his, his um, statements and sayings. Isaiah says this in chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There's majesty there. Majesty. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God God Almighty. Holy means um, that he is separate, set apart. He is completely contained in his own self. Different completely to everything else, above everything else. The whole earth, cry these seraphim, these angels, is filled with his glory. 
At the sound of their, vo- of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Identity. We can identify with Isaiah there. He's saying we also are people of unclean lips. Our propensity to speak um, lies, untruths, gossip is, is legion. It's, we do it so readily, don't we? And apart from that, Isaiah is also talking about the things of his heart. He knows he's not worthy to stand before the one who is holy. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from tongs from the altar, with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. Ouch. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There is a conversion, if you like, from uh, dirty to clean. At that point, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Or who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And he was just a man like you. Let's pray. Father, I think we came into this very glad this Christian life, very glad that you had sent your son to Jesus to die for us. And we do, we love Jesus, sometimes not as much as we would, but we love it when he comes um, and he turns his face upon us, as it were, not that he ever turns away. Perhaps it's more accurate to say when we turn our faces upon him and feel the warmth of his smiling embrace. Father, we are ever so glad that you listened to the Son and you sent the Holy Spirit to be within us as a witness to that, that the Holy Spirit teaches us. He pleads for us. We'd be lost, with, we'd be lost without that. I've lost sound. Father, the thing about being used by you, though, is a bit frightening. I don't think I'm alone, Lord, in taking time to get to grips with that. But there was a point in time, Father, when you filled me with your spirit. When I looked upon you, it seemed in my heart in a new way, and I knew that I was undone. I knew that I could never be the same again. That came at a point in time in my life. I remember a time when it wasn't so. Someone preached on it. They preached on this passage, and I knew, Lord... But it hadn't happened for me. But there came a time when it did happen. I pray that you would do that for each and every person here that wants to receive that knowledge and that filling again with the Holy Spirit. Would you um, do something active? I'm not going to look. No one will look. But would you raise a hand if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Either for the first time, this comforter, this counselor, this advocate that Jesus petitioned the Father and the Father sent to come and live in you. If, if you would like to receive that and to have him come and live in you, would you raise one hand now and as we pray, believe that you receive it. If you want to be filled again, then would you raise one hand now? You can open your eyes and see that my hand is raised. Father, would you um, enable us to experience a fresh filling with the Holy Spirit?
If there are those here, and I know there are, who've never known your wonderful filling, who've never known the revelation of your glory, Father, by, that comes by that filling with you, Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, I pray that they would experience that now. I pray that they'd experience um, a dynamic, um, two-way power in their lives. I pray that you would set people free from um, besetting sins. I pray that you would unblock ears that have not heard your voice for a long time. I pray that you would, as only you can, and only it's safe for you to do, soften calloused hearts that have been through so much and enable them to beat again in time with you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Come and fill us. And on the basis of that revelation or re-revelation, I want to say, I'm here, Lord. Use me. I know I'm pretty, pretty pathetic. But if you come and live with me, I would have to be a liar to say that then I can be pretty pathetic. If you're within me, Holy Spirit, we can do all things. So I pray that you would use me. And if anybody else wants to um, respond to that one, then raise your other hand. Dangerous. Exciting. Don't think there's really any other way to live for a Christian. Come, Lord, and commission us. Thank you.